0: Our second reading comes from Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and co-worker, to Apphia, our sister, to Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. When I remember you in my prayers... I always thank my God because I hear of your love for all the saints and your faith toward the Lord Jesus. I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective when you perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. I have indeed received much joy and encouragement from your love because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. For this reason... Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do your duty, yet I would rather appeal to you on the basis of love, and I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. I am appealing to you for my child, Enesimus, whose father I have become during my imprisonment. Formerly, he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful both to you and to me. I am sending him, that is my own heart, back to you. I wanted to keep him with me so that he might be of service to me in your place during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your good deed might be voluntary and not something forced. Perhaps this is the reason he was separated from you for a while, so that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. If he has wronged you in any way or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will repay it. I say nothing about you owing me even your own self, Yes, brother, let me have this benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I am writing to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. Here ends our reading. And now please pray with me. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, when I worked as a chaplain at Harvard College right after Divinity School, we had a morning prayer service, a daily prayer service that lasted 15 minutes in the morning. And as a part of that daily prayer service was a five-minute homily. And so as one of the chaplains on staff, I had the chance periodically to deliver this homily to the maybe dozen or so people who would actually show up at 8.45 for our morning prayer service. And to make it fun for me and a bit of a challenge, one thing I liked doing was choosing uh, the most unusual texts that I could find in the Bible and preaching on them. And the good news is there are lots of unusual texts in the Bible to choose from. (laughs) I was never short of material. And I was reminded of that that this morning as I looked at our text, Uh, this letter uh, to Philemon. And yes, there are different ways to pronounce that name, but of the different ways, I prefer Philemon. (laughs) Um, Here's this short letter to Philemon. It's the shortest letter of all of Paul's letters, just one chapter long. The verses that I read to you are pretty much the entire letter. There's a slight bit at the end that's added to that. Who here has spent a lot of time reading Philemon before? Can you tell me uh, between which books it's sandwiched in the New Testament? You can shake off the dust in your brains and think about your old confirmation class as you were trying to memorize the 27 books of the New Testament in their order. Uh, Philemon, Philemon is an interesting letter also because it's Paul's only letter that's not written to a community of people. It's an undisputed letter of Paul's, and unlike other letters which are written to whole congregations, this letter is written to one person, an individual. And in case you didn't pick up on it in my reading of it, here's the basic context. Philemon is the leader of the house church in Colossae. And there, he uh, has as one of his slaves, at least in the past, Anisimus, this guy, who um, at some point ran away or escaped uh, the house of Philemon and found his way to Paul. He got converted to the faith with Paul, and now Paul is sending Onesimus back to Philemon. That's the context And what Paul is asking Philemon to do Is to give his former slave Onesimus a second chance Here's this guy who ran away before We don't know the exact circumstances But now Paul says He's a changed man And he deserves another shot This is one of these contexts That I think has relevance To every one of us in this room All of us have people in our lives that we might hold grudges against or might be wounded by who might deserve or at least want a second chance. If I were to guess, there are also people who hold grudges against you for whom you would need a second chance. The question is, do you give that second chance? And if so, why? Now, in certain circumstances, it's really easy because in certain circumstances... Uh, the offense, whatever's happened, is not that big a deal. So reconciliation is fairly straightforward. Uh, Oftentimes you'll have a situation where there's just been a misunderstanding between two people. (laughs) There's just a misunderstanding between two people. And in that case, as long as the misunderstanding is cleared up, you can move on. In that case, the second chance is pretty straightforward. Other times, uh, something might have been said in the heat of emotion. something might have been said, perhaps under the benefit of a few glasses of wine, that then you want to take back the next day, and there are times where you said, okay, I understand, that was that moment, you were angry, you were in a bad place, Um, I understand where the words came from, we can move on. I am from Boston, and in Boston, we're we're, we're notoriously bad drivers, and so when someone cuts you off, it's like, well, they just cut me off, it's not that big a deal. Uh, After all, we all do that here. So again, certain things are minor offenses, but then of those things in our lives, and we can all think of the cases, where actually the wounds that have been done to us are very deep and long-lasting. Sometimes those wounds have been so deep that they become infected and they fester with pus. They swell up and they bother you and you can't get them out of your head. You think of one particular person's name and when that person's name comes to your mind, there's a certain visceral reaction that grows within you. I bet if you were to take time, you could think very quickly of some of those people in your own life. Maybe it's someone who was uh, a spouse, a partner, uh, who committed some type of infidelity. And you had to find out about this, usually after that person was lying to you. That type of a wound is a wound that can run very deep and can fester for quite a while. What about a friend who betrayed you? Someone you thought was a friend, someone you thought was very close to you, someone you thought was one of your best friends, and then you had to find out that the person was actually saying bad things about you behind your back. That can be a deep wound. Or a friend who you thought was your friend, but who for some reason keeps distancing himself or herself from you. And when you actually needed a friend there, that person was nowhere to be found. And that friend might not think twice of it, but for you, that's a deep wound that you keep carrying on. Or perhaps it was a colleague at work. That work colleague who's doing whatever he or she can to get ahead. Who takes credit for things that he or she shouldn't take credit for. Who cheats and lies and steals and creates these various issues. Or maybe someone even in church. Someone in church you can't stand someone who's done things wrong to you or others that you have a hard time forgiving? How do you give that person a second chance? Under what circumstances do you do that? Is it right to do that? The classic Catholic means of reconciliation involves three different steps. The first step, of course, is contrition. If someone wants to reconcile, if someone actually wants a second chance, the first thing is for that person who did wrong to say, I did wrong, I am sorry, mea culpa, mea culpa, mea culpa, I am looking for some sort of redress. Contrition is the first step. How can you forgive someone? How can you give someone a second chance if that person doesn't acknowledge the fault that that person made, right? That needs to be, it seems to be, the first step, contrition. And then uh, the next part is, of course, penance. Okay, it's one thing to say you're sorry, but now how are you going to make restitution? How is justice going to be done? How are you going to change your behavior in the future so this wrong that happened does not not get repeated again and again and again? Contrition, penance. And that penance varies depending on the depth of your wound, not what that person thinks is appropriate penance. You, the wrong person, have to set what the penance is such that you feel satisfied that that person has changed his or her ways. Or made up for some wrong that was done. And then, then you can grant absolution. Then there can be that exchange, that reconciliation, that moment where you say, I forgive you, I'm giving you a second chance. Contrition, penance, absolution. It does work. I think you can probably think of examples in your own life where someone came to you or you went to someone else and you said, I am sorry. You made an effort to make it up and you were able to repair a relationship. That can lead to second chances. Whenever I think of that notion, I <coughs> have this image in my head from the movie The Mission. Have you ever seen that movie, The Mission? This is all about uh, Portuguese, the, the, the Portuguese in Paraguay in the 18th century and this conflict between missionaries and these sort of very aggressive business conquistador types. And one of the main characters is played by Robert De Niro, who was at one point one of the most rapacious of all the uh, merchants uh, you know, hurting the indigenous population whenever he could. And then he decided to become a Jesuit and converted, and he had to do penance. And there's these very, like, in- incredibly shaking scenes of Robert De Niro, you know, crawling up this, you know, waterfall, carrying all this stuff with him, trying to have as much pain as possible. Because um, he did so much wrong. There's that sense of penance. You must carry a burden. There must be some degree of something exacted. Can you think of any problems with that up? The, uh Scenario. How often is it Someone says they're sorry Tries to make it up to you But you know in your heart of hearts That person's not going to change Can you still give that person a second chance Oh I know you want to be sorry I know you say you're sorry But thats I, I don't believe you I can't give you absolution Or better yet How often is it that someone who does you wrong actually seeks contrition? Actually is contrite. I mean, how often does that actually happen? I mean, usually when someone does you wrong, they don't think they did wrong. Or at least they thought they were justified in their actions, yes? So if, if, if if it requires that person to feel contrition, and they're not willing to do that, there's no second chance. Or to turn the tables just a bit, can you think of someone who has a grudge against you? Do you feel contrite for what you supposedly did? Are you going to go seek forgiveness for that? This is a great schema but doesn't leave all that much room for legitimate second chances. This past week I was reading a book by a Yale theologian named Miroslav Volf called Free of Charge. And in the beginning of the book, he talks about how our world is a world that's devoid of grace. He gives an example. Miroslav and his wife uh, were unable to have uh, children biologically on their own, and, but they had the opportunity to adopt a son. And he said the morning that they were going to the hospital to pick up their son... Uh, he said it was one of the happiest moments, happiest days of his entire life. Here is Wolf, just like in his car, so excited, he can't even hold himself in. He's going to finally have a son, and he can't wait to lay his eyes on him. And he's so excited in his driving that he drives, drives the wrong way down a one-way street <laughs> in Los Angeles, uh, where he was living at the time. And a police officer sees him and pulls him over. Now, he's from the former Yugoslavia, and in the former Yugoslavia, when a cop pulls you over, the right thing to do is to get out of your car and talk to the police officer. So he gets pulled over, and he's all excited. He's like, well, I'll just explain to the police officer what the situation is. It's not that big a deal. So he gets out of his car to try and turn to the police officer. Of course, the police officer in America, uh, they don't take too kindly to people getting out of cars when they get pulled over. So here's this police officer in his shades who's starting to yell at Miroslav to get back in his car uh, and then come up and say, license and registration. But sir, but sir, you don't understand. License and registration, takes that, goes back and hands him a ticket. And so here's Miroslav as a theologian reflecting on this, being like, okay, Here's like the happiest day, one of the happiest days of my life, and yet marred by this fact of like total lack of grace, appreciation for what might be going on in the world and in another person's life. The other day at, um, at men's lunch, uh, we were talking about politics. And, I know, shocker. Uh, (laughs) Especially since I helped choose this object. We are talking about politics and particularly the benefits and drawbacks of a two-party system both in the U.S. and the U.K. And at one point, uh, and and again, we're we're, we're talking about the polarization that's in society, the extreme polarization in society. And Daniel uh, O'Connell brings up the point of, well, a lot of this, as you know, I think trying to piece it together theologically, a lot of this is based on your perspective on human nature. So if you think that human beings are bad people fundamentally, are hopeless sinners fundamentally, you tend to see the world as a zero-sum game. You tend to see the world in transactional ways. You tend to assume the bad in someone else. You want to set up strict laws to prevent that person from doing bad. And that's the way the world functions. And all of a sudden, when, when all of a sudden you have this negative view of human nature and the negative view of how the world works, there's this incredible lack of grace that's in the world, right? You're immediately distrustful of everyone around you. The other party must be wrong. You don't even make an effort to try and think about it. The other person must be wrong because you live in this, this view of human nature going that way. Uh, same thing in international relations, everything else. The problem with this lack of reconciliation, lack of grace, the lack of giving of second chances is that if you feel like you're being, you've been wronged and that person's not seeking contrition, all of a sudden you have this negative view on the people around you. That person's, person, that person's a bad 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 person. If you've been wronged enough, all of a sudden everywhere you look, you see nothing but bad people around you. And there's no grace there. It's almost like we become feral cats. You ever seen a feral cat? It's like the cat's been wounded so many times and hurt so many times, you try and go near there and just even come close to pet the cat, and the cat runs away or snarls at you because, they can't, because the cat can't conceive of anything other than bad intentions. How do you break that cycle? How do you get out of that framework? How does how, it not always be an us versus them? If the world is lacking grace, if there's no second chances that are there, if you're constantly waiting on the other person to, to realize how wrong that other person is, don't you just end up with a world where we're all a bunch of feral cats? The letter to Philemon is an interesting one because of what Paul does when he writes to Philemon, how he approaches this issue of second chances. Paul starts off to him and just shows his immense love for Philemon and all the great work he's done. It's like, I love you, you've done amazing work, you are continue to do amazing work, I am overjoyed, legitimately overjoyed by how great you are. And then appeals for him to give Onesimus a second chance, based on what? On anything Onesimus did to deserve it? On his contrition? No, he appeals to on the basis of love. A Christian type of love. Which of course is rooted in the basic Christian truth that you are loved by God, not because you deserve it, but because that's, that is God's gracious will for you. That's the basis of where this second chance comes from. God gave you a second chance and keeps giving you second chances, even though you don't deserve them. God loves you for who you are, just by God's very nature. You are forgiven by God. You are redeemed and saved by God. Can you then use that as a basis to pass that along to others? To change the cycle, to break it? This question of love. Jesus comes back to this again and again in the Gospels. In the Sermon on the Mount, one of the most famous parts of the Sermon on the Mount, you know, where Jesus is talking about loving those who love you is easy. You have to love your neighbors. Why? Because God sends the Son on those who are both righteous and unrighteous alike. God's love is indiscriminate. And it even falls on you. Can you turn around and express that to others? If you look at Paul, one thing about Paul that's incredible, Paul is someone who has been on the road, preaching, preaching with virtually no money, building these tents. He's been beaten up time and again, and he's writing to Philemon from where? From prison. If anyone should have a negative view of human nature and be harsh about the way humans are, it should be Paul. But here is Paul writing this letter that's overflowing with love. Because in spite of all the struggles he's been through, he's still overwhelmed day after day by the fact that God loves him and that he's been redeemed and that he should share that, share that grace with the whole world. Now there's one important caveat to this that I'd like to add. Uh, yes, giving second chances, I think, is something that we need to do as Christians. When Jesus is asked, how many times do you forgive? As many as seven times. Jesus says, no, 77 times. So yes, there's this call to forgive because we have been forgiven ourselves. Because we have been loved. We, are, we have to start the cycle of grace. But there's, of course, one important caveat to mention. That is <laughs> this little question of boundaries and enabling. Sometimes there are people um, who are in a situation where by you constantly giving them second chances, you're actually not helping them. Uh, you can maybe think of certain individuals this way, where certain people, they just keep, they just keep in bad cycles and bad habits, and if forgiving them won't actually help them get out of that cycle. So I do want to make that clear. There are certain times where you're actually not loving someone by giving them a second chance again and again and again. This is particularly people who are in addiction cycles, but other things too. So I do want to mention that. But nevertheless, all of that, whatever the circumstance, has to be governed by that Christian doctrine of love. Paul is sitting down and writing you a letter. Paul is writing a letter to you, an individual, and asking you if you are willing to give that person in your life a second chance who does not deserve it, who may not have come to you seeking contrition. This is not an easy thing to swallow. It's not an easy thing to do, and maybe you can't do it today, or tomorrow, or in a week, or in a month. But Paul's asking us, and asking you, to give the world a second chance. Because God has given you a second chance, and God continues to love you. May we remember that love, first and foremost, in our hearts.